Welcome to The Essential Sam Harris. This is Making Sense of Existential Threat and Nuclear War. The goal of this series is to organize, compile, and juxtapose conversations hosted by Sam Harris into specific areas of interest. This is an ongoing effort to construct a coherent overview of Sam's perspectives and arguments, the various explorations and approaches to the topic, the relevant agreements and disagreements, and the pushbacks and evolving thoughts which his guests have advanced. The purpose of these compilations is not to provide a complete picture of any issue, but to entice you to go deeper into these subjects. Along the way, we'll point you to the full episodes with each featured guest, and at the conclusion, we'll offer some reading, listening, and watching suggestions, which range from fun and light to densely academic. One note to keep in mind for this series, Sam has long argued for a unity of knowledge where the barriers between fields of study are viewed as largely unhelpful artifacts of unnecessarily partitioned thought. The pursuit of wisdom and reason in one area of study naturally bleeds into, and greatly affects, others. You'll hear plenty of crossover into other topics as these dives into the archives unfold. And your thinking about a particular topic may shift as you realize its contingent relationships with others. In this topic, you'll hear the natural overlap with theories of ethics, violence and pacifism, and more. So, get ready. Let's make sense of existential threat and nuclear war. In 1961, the astronomer Francis Drake jotted down a fairly simple back-of-the-napkin formula to calculate just how many technologically advanced civilizations we should expect to be out there in the cosmos right now. It came to be known as the Drake Equation. The equation starts with an extremely large number, the estimate of the total number of stars in the universe. Then we narrow that number down to how many of those stars have planets orbiting them. Then we narrow that number down to how many of those planets are likely to be suitable for the evolution of life. Then we narrow that down to the number of those life-suitable planets that have actually had life emerge. Then we narrow that down to how many of those life forms are intelligent. And then, finally, we narrow that down to how many of those intelligent life forms advanced to the stage of a technological civilization. Even if we're quite conservative with our estimate at each step of the narrowing process, maybe we guess that only one in every 100,000 life-suitable planets actually did achieve even basic microbial life, or that only one in every one million forms of intelligent life became technologically advanced. Even if we apply these stringent factors, the results of the equation and our remaining number suggest that there still ought to be between a thousand and a hundred million advanced civilizations just in the Milky Way galaxy alone. And there are, of course, billions of galaxies just like ours. So even if the correct number is just in the hundreds in our Milky Way, when you look out in the cosmos, there should be millions of civilizations out there. A physicist named Enrico Fermi asked the simple question, if this is true, where is everybody? How come, when we look out into the cosmos, we don't see or hear obvious evidence of a plethora of advanced life forms zipping about in their ships, 
symmetrically geoforming entire galaxies into power plants, or what have you. This question became known as Fermi's paradox. There is no shortage of hypotheses to address Fermi's question, but just about all of the responses can be categorized under three general answer types. One answer is that we're just early. Perhaps all of Drake's math was right and everybody will show up, but we just happen to be amongst the first to the party. The cosmos itself may have just recently reached a state of habitability after the chaos from the initial inflation and the Big Bang sent heat and debris flying about in every direction. Maybe it just recently settled down and allowed life like ours to flourish, and we humans are just an early riser. Another answer is that we're very rare. Maybe Drake's numbers were not nearly conservative enough, and life such as ours is just an exceedingly unlikely cosmic event. Perhaps there are only a small handful of civilizations out there. And given the vastness of the cosmos, it's no surprise that we wouldn't have had any close neighbors who happened to be advanced enough to say hello. Maybe the neighborhood is just very quiet. Or perhaps the most disturbing answer, the one we're going to be dealing with in this compilation, is this one. Maybe there is a great filter. What if there is a certain unavoidable technological phase that every intelligent life's advancement must confront? A technological phase that is just so hard to get through that almost no civilization successfully crosses the threshold. And that explains why it appears that no one is out there. It may be that we humans are on a typical trajectory and are destined to be erased, and soon. But even if there is a filter, and even if just the tiniest percentage of civilizations have been able to get through it and continue advancing without tripping over themselves, pretty soon they'd have the knowledge of how to do monumentally big engineering projects, if they so choose. We should see evidence of their continued existence, right? So let's make sure we're imagining this filter analogy correctly. Maybe a single filter isn't quite right. Maybe we should be picturing thicker and thicker filter layers stacked one on top of the other. Maybe there would be a moment when you really do leave them all behind. That point of permanent safety would be when a civilization achieves a kind of knowledge so powerful that it understands how to survive and avoid its own self-destruction perpetually, and really does get through all of those filters. But there does seem to be a kind of natural sequential order of the types of knowledge that a civilization is likely to discover. It is difficult to imagine discovering how to build flying machines before building wheelbarrows, but that is also not a guarantee. Is our human order of scientific discovery typical or an outlier? It seems that harnessing energy is key to both creative and destructive power, and that they must go hand in hand. You could imagine the kind of knowledge it would take to pull off a huge engineering project, like building a device that could siphon all of the energy from a black hole at the center of a galaxy, for example. And you can recognize that this same knowledge would presumably also contain the power to destroy the civilization which discovered it, either maliciously or accidentally. And the odds of avoiding that fate trend towards impossible over a short amount of time. No one makes it through. This is the great filter answer to Enrico Fermi, that there are countless civilizations out there that blip out of existence almost as quickly as they achieve the technical prowess to harness even a small percentage of the potential energy available to them. 
Is this what happens out there? Does this answer fare me? How many filters are there? We humans are a relatively young species, and already we seem to be discovering a few technologies that have some filter potential. If we get through our current challenges, are we bound to just discover another, even more difficult technology to survive alongside? Is this tenable? This compilation is going to be a tour of Sam's engagement with, and a close look at, the strongest weapon of war we've created so far. A weapon that might be a candidate for this great filter, or at least a very difficult one. Nuclear war. The complete erasure and annihilation of civilization was a talent once thought to be reserved only for the gods. As a reminder of just how stark the moment was when we realized we may have that power in our own hands, perhaps for the first time sensing that great filter on our horizon, it's worth playing a haunting and now very famous audio clip which lays the realization bare. Upon witnessing a successful test detonation of a nuclear bomb south of Los Alamos, Robert Oppenheimer, the physicist leading the Manhattan Project, recalls the scene and his thoughts. We knew the world would not be the same. Few people laughed. Few people cried. Most people were silent. I remembered the line from the Hindu scripture, the Bhagavad Gita. Vishnu is trying to persuade the prince that he should do his duty and to impress him takes on his multi-armed form and says, now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. I suppose we all thought that one way or another. Making sense of nuclear war and its existential threat is not the happiest of subjects. And perhaps that's why most of us don't often look closely at the precariousness of the situation we're in. We experience a kind of cognitive dissonance that can act as a psychological barrier when direct engagement with a known threat is just too destabilizing. And more importantly, when the threat seems to defy a readily available remedy. If there is a great filter out there, what good would it do to worry about it? Who would want to think about this stuff? Well, Sam Harris is one of those people who forces himself to, though that wasn't always the case. Before we get to the guests and conversations that Sam has hosted on Making Sense, we should remind ourselves of the analogy that we're using to approach this subject. A filter is not a wall. A filter, no matter how dense, does permit some things to get through. So even if the odds are stacked against us, the only game in town appears to be trying to improve our chances of getting to the other side. We're going to start with Sam himself as he describes his re-engagement with this threat. It's his attempt to shake us out of our collective moral slumber, to help us notice our circumstances when it comes to the nuclear question. He reads here from a particular book which was instrumental to his paying close attention to this subject. Sam is speaking in July of 2020, in the introduction of episode 210. We're coming up on the 75th anniversary of the atomic bomb in about a week. July 16th is the 75th anniversary of Trinity, 
the explosion of the first atomic bomb at the Trinity test site in Alamogordo, New Mexico. Whatever the merits or necessity of our building the bomb, uh, and even using it to end the war with Japan, that can certainly be debated. But what is absolutely clear to anyone who studies the ensuing 75 years is that these were 75 years of folly, nearly suicidal folly. And this has been a chapter in human history of such reckless stupidity that it's been a kind of moral oblivion, and there's no end in sight. Rather, we have simply forgotten about it. We have forgotten about the situation we are in every day of our lives. This is really difficult to think about, much less understand. The enormity of our error here is stupefying in some basic sense. It's like we were convinced 75 years ago to rig all of our homes and buildings to explode. And then we just got distracted by other things, right? And most of us live each day totally unaware that the status quo is as precarious as it in fact is. So when the history of this period is written, our descendants will surely ask, what the hell were they thinking? And we are the people of whom that question will be asked. That is, if we don't annihilate ourselves in the meantime. What the hell are we thinking? What are our leaders thinking? We have been stuck for nearly three generations in a posture of defending civilization, or imagining that we are, by threatening to destroy it at any moment. And given our capacity to make mistakes, given the increasing threat of cyber attack, the status quo grows less tenable by the day. The first book I ever read about the prospect of nuclear war was Jonathan Shell's The Fate of the Earth, which originally came out in The New Yorker in 1982. If you haven't read it, it's a beautifully written and amazingly sustained exercise in thinking about the unthinkable. And I'd like to read you a few passages to give you a sense of it. This is from the beginning, starting a few sentences in. These bombs were built as weapons for war, but their significance greatly transcends war and all its causes and outcomes. They grew out of history, yet they threatened to end history. They were made by men, yet they threatened to annihilate man. They are a pit into which the whole world can fall, a nemesis of all human intentions, actions, and hopes. Only life itself, which they threaten to swallow up, can give the measure of their significance. Yet in spite of the immeasurable importance of nuclear weapons, the world has declined on the whole to think about them very much. We have thus far failed to fashion, or even to discover within ourselves, an emotional or intellectual or political response to them. This peculiar failure of response, in which hundreds of millions of people acknowledge the presence of an immediate, unremitting threat to their existence and to the existence of the world they live in, but do nothing about it, a failure in which both self-interest and fellow-feeling seem to have died, has itself been such a striking phenomenon 
that it has to be regarded as an extremely important part of the nuclear predicament as this has existed so far. End quote. So there Shell gets at the strangeness of the status quo, where the monster is in the room, and yet we have managed to divert our attention from it. And I love this point he makes. It's a violation both of self-interest and fellow feeling. Our capacity to ignore this problem somehow seems psychologically impossible. It's a subversion of really all of our priorities, both personal and with respect to our ethical commitments to others. A little bit later on, he talks about this state of mind a little more. Because denial is a form of self-protection, if only against anguishing thoughts and feelings, and because it contains something useful, and perhaps even, in its way, necessary to life, anyone who invites people to draw aside the veil and look at the peril face to face is at risk of trespassing on inhibitions that are part of our humanity. I hope in these reflections to proceed with the utmost possible respect for all forms of refusal to accept the unnatural and horrifying prospect of a nuclear holocaust. So there, Shell is being more tactful than I'm being here, admitting that this denial is on some level necessary to get on with life, but it is nonetheless crazy. Year after year after year, we are running the risk of mishap here. And whatever the risk, you can't keep just rolling the dice. And so it seems time to ask, when is this going to end? To begin the exploration of clips, we're going to hear from a philosopher and author who spends a lot of time looking at existential risk, Nick Bostrom. Bostrom has a talent for painting colorful analogies to prime our thinking about these difficult topics. One of his analogies that brings the Great Filter Hypothesis into vivid clarity goes like this. Imagine a giant urn filled with marbles, which are mostly white in color, but range in shades of gray. Each of these marbles represents a kind of knowledge that we can pluck from nature and apply technologically. Picture reaching in and pulling out the knowledge of how to make a hairdryer, or the automobile, or a toaster oven, or even something more abstract, like the knowledge of how to alter the genome to choose eye color or some other aesthetic purpose. Reaching into this urn, rummaging around and pulling out a marble, is the act of scientific exploration and achievement. Now, white marbles represent the kinds of knowledge that carry with them very little existential threat. Maybe pulling a marble like this would be gaining knowledge of how to manufacture glass. That's a marble that we pulled out of the urn around 3500 BCE in Egypt. That little bit of knowledge mostly improves life on Earth for humans and has all kinds of lovely applications for food preservation, artistic expression, window manufacturing, eyesight correction, and much more. It likely carries with it some kind of minor threat as well, though it's difficult to imagine how that specific advancement would inherently threaten the existence of the species. You can imagine thousands of white marbles that feel as benign, positive, and generally harmless as this one. But Bostrom asks us to consider what a black marble would be. Is there some kind of knowledge that, when plucked out of nature, is just so powerful that every civilization is eradicated shortly after pulling it from the urn? Are there several of these black marbles hiding in the urn somewhere? 
Are we bound to grab one eventually? Sam points out that it has generally been the attitude of science to just pull out as many marbles as fast as we possibly can and let everyone know about it the moment you have a good grip. And we operate as if the black marbles aren't in the urn, as if they simply don't exist. What shade of gray was the marble that represented the moment we obtained the knowledge of how to split the nucleus of a uranium-235 atom and trigger and target its fission chain reaction in a warhead? Was that a black marble? That will be a question we consider throughout this episode, as well as the specific political entanglements which relate to this problem and the alliances and personalities which affected it in the recent past. So let's start out with Nick Bostrom and Sam engaging on the topic of existential threat in general as we move towards the nuclear question. Here, you'll hear Bostrom lay out his vulnerable world hypothesis and draw out the metaphor that we introduced. This is from episode 151, Will We Destroy the Future? Let's start with the vulnerable world hypothesis. What do you mean by that phrase? Well, the hypothesis is, roughly speaking, that there is some level of technological development at which the world gets destroyed by default, as it were. So then what does it mean to get destroyed by default? I define something I call the semi-anarchic default condition, which is a condition in which there are a wide range of different actors with a wide range of different human recognizable motives. But then, more importantly, two conditions hold. One is that there is no very reliable way of resolving global coordination problems. And the other is that we don't have a very extremely reliable way of preventing individuals from committing actions that are extremely strongly disapproved of by a great majority of other people. Maybe it's better to come at it through a a metaphor. Yeah, the urn. The urn Mm -hmm. metaphor. So what if in, in this urn there is a black ball in there somewhere. Like some, is there some possible technology that could be such that whichever civilization uh, discovers it invariably gets destroyed? And um, what if there is such a black ball in the urn? Though I mean, we can ask about how likely that is to be the case. We can also look at what what is our current strategy with respect to this possibility. And it seems to me that currently our strategy with re- respect to the possibility that the urn might contain a black ball is, is simply to hope that it doesn't. And so we keep extracting balls as fast as we can. We have become quite good at that, but we have no ability to put balls back into the urn. We, we cannot uninvent our inventions. So the first part of this paper tries to identify what are the types of ways in which the world could be vulnerable, the types of ways in which there could be some possible black ball technology that we might invent. And the first and most obvious type of way the world could be vulnerable is if there is some technology that greatly empowers individuals to cause sufficiently large quantities of destruction. Motivate this with a, or illustrate it by means of a historical counterfactual. We, in the last century, discovered how to split the atom and release the energy that is contained within some of the energy that's contained within the, the nucleus. And it turned out that, uh, that this is quite difficult to do. You need special materials. You need plutonium or highly enriched uranium. So really only states can do this kind of stuff to produce nuclear weapons. But what if it had turned out that there had been an 
easier way to release the energy of the atom? What if you could have made a nuclear bomb by, you know, baking sand in the microwave oven or something like that? So, so that then that might well have been the end of of, of human civilization. In that, you, you, it, it's hard to see how you could have cities. Let us say, if if anybody who wanted to could destroy millions of people. So, so maybe we were just lucky. Now, now we know, of course, that it is physically impossible to create uh, an atomic detonation by baking sand in a microwave oven. But before you actually did the relevant nuclear physics, how, how could you possibly have known how it would turn out? Well, let's just spell out that because I, you know, I, I want to conserve everyone's intuitions as we go on this harrowing ride to uh, <laughs> to your terminus here, because the punchline of this paper is fairly startling when you get to what the the remedies are. So why is it that civilization could not endure the prospect of what you call easy nukes? If it were that easy to create a a Hiroshima-level blast or beyond, why is it just a, a foregone conclusion that that would mean the end of cities and perhaps the end of most things we recognize? I think foregone conclusion is maybe a little too strong. It depends a little bit on the exact parameters we plug in. I mean, the intuition is that in, in a large enough population of people, like amongst every population with millions of people, there will always be a few people who, for whatever reason, would like to kill a million people or more if they could, whether they are just crazy or, or evil or they have some weird ideological doctrine or they're trying to extort other people or threaten other people that just just humans are very diverse and in a large enough set of people that will for for practically any desire you, you can specify there will be somebody in there that has that so if each of those destructively inclined people would be able to cause a sufficient amount of destruction then everything would get destroyed yeah now if one if one imagines this actually playing out in history, then to, to, to tell whether all of civilization really would get destroyed or some horrible catastrophe short of that would happen instead would depend on various things, like just what kind of nuclear weapon. Would, would it be like a, a small kind of Hiroshima type of thing or a thermonuclear bomb? How easy would it be? Could literally anybody do it like in five minutes? Or would it take some engineer working for half a year? And so depending on exactly the what what values you pick for those and some other variables right. you, you might get like scenarios ranging from from very bad to kind of existential catastrophe but the the, the point is just to illustrate that there there historically have been these technological transitions where we have been lucky in that exactly. the destructive capability we discovered were hard to to wield you know and a, maybe a plausible way in which this kind of uh, very highly destructive capability could become easy to wield in the future would be through developments in biotechnology that maybe makes it easy to create designer viruses and so forth right. that doesn't don't require high amounts of energy or special difficult materials and so forth and, and there you might have an even stronger case like so with a nuclear weapon like one nuclear weapon can only destroy one city right uh, where the viruses and stuff potentially can spread so yeah and we should remind people that we're we're in an environment now where people talk with some degree of flippancy about the prospect of every household one day having something like a desktop printer that can print DNA sequences, right? That everyone becomes their own 
bespoke molecular biologist, and you you can just print your own medicine at home or your your own gen- genetic intervention at home, and this stuff really is, you know, the recipe in the, under those conditions, the recipe to weaponize the the nineteen eighteen flu could just be sent to you like a PDF. It's not without beyond the bounds of plausible sci-fi that we could be in a condition where it really would be within the power of one nihilistic or you know otherwise ideological person to destroy the lives of millions and even billions in the wrong case. Yeah, or send us a PDF where you could just download it from the internet. So exactly. the, the, yeah. the full genomes of the number of highly virulent organisms are in the public domain and, uh, and just ready to download. So yeah, so I mean, we, we could talk more about that. I, I think that I would rather see a future where DNA synthesis was a service provided by a few places in the world where it would be able, if, if, if the need arose, to exert some control, some screening, yeah. rather than something that every lab needs to have its own separate little machine. Yeah, so that's, that, these, these are examples of type one vulnerability, like where the problem really arises from individuals becoming too empowered in their ability to create massive amounts of harm. Now, so there are other ways in which the world could be vulnerable that are slightly more subtle, but I think also worth bearing in mind. So these have to do more about the way that technological developments could change the incentives that different actors face. We we can again return to the nuclear history case for an illustration of this. And, And actually, this is maybe the closest to a black ball we've gotten so far with thermonuclear weapons and the big arms race during the Cold War led to something like 70,000 warheads being on hair trigger alert. So it looks like, like with, with, when we can see some of the uh, archives of this history that have recently opened up, that there were a number of close calls. And the world actually came quite close to the brink on, on several occasions. And, and we might have been quite lucky to get through. It might not have been that we were in such a stable situation uh, it, it rather might have been that this was a kind of slightly blackballish technology and we just had enough luck to get through. But you could imagine it could have been worse. You could imagine properties of this technology that would have created stronger incentives, say, for a first strike, so that you would have crisis instability. If it had been easier, let us say, in a first strike to take out all the adversaries' nuclear weapons, then it might not have taken a lot uh, in, in a crisis situation to just have enough fear that you would have to strike first for fear that the adversary otherwise would do the same to you. Yeah, remind people that in the aftermath of the Cuban Missile Crisis, the people who were closest to the action felt that the odds of an exchange had been something like a coin toss, and something like 30 to 50%. And what you're envisioning is a situation where what you describe as safe first strike, which is, you know, there's just no reasonable fear that you're not going to be able to annihilate your enemy, provided you strike first, that would be a, a far less stable situation. And it's also, it's, it's also forgotten that the status quo of mutually assured destruction was actually a step towards stability. I mean, there was before the Russians had, or the Soviets had their own arsenals, there was a greater you know, game theoretic concern that we would be more tempted to use ours because nuclear deterrence wasn't a thing yet. Yeah, so some degree of stabilizing influence, although, of course, maybe at the expense of the outcome being even worse, if yeah. both sides are destroyed, then 
a safer strike might just be one side being destroyed. Right. But yeah. And so if, if it had been possible, say, with one nuclear warhead to wipe out enemies' nuclear warheads within a wider radius, then it's actually the case. Or if it had been easier to detect nuclear um, submarines so that you could be more confident that you had actually you know, been able to target all of the other side's nuclear capability, then that, that could have resulted in a more unstable arms race, one that would, with a sort of higher degree of certainty, result in uh, the weapons being used. And, and you can consider other possible future ways in which, say, the world might find itself locked into arms race dynamics, where it's not that anybody wants to destroy the world, but it might just be very hard to come to an agreement that avoids the arms being built up and then used in a crisis. Uh, it, it, nuclear weapon reduction treaties, you know, there are concerns about verification, but in principle, you can kind of have like nuclear weapons are quite big and they use very special materials. There might be other military technologies where even if both sides agree that they wanted to just ban this military technology, it might just, the nature of the technology it might be such that it would be very difficult or impossible to enforce. In that exchange, you heard Bostrom mention how lucky we may have gotten in that it turns out nuclear weapons are not very easy to create. So even if this technology turns out to be a nearly black ball, and perhaps the darkest one we've yet pulled out of the urn, we can examine our treatment of them as a dress rehearsal with incredibly high stakes. Bostrom also mentioned something in passing that's worth keeping in mind as we look closer at the nuclear weapon question, what he referred to as global coordination problems. This is a concept sometimes used in economics and game theory, and it describes a situation that would be best solved by everyone simultaneously moving in the same direction. But of course, people can't be sure what's in anyone else's mind, and humans are famously difficult to coordinate and synchronize in any case. So often, these types of problems entrench themselves and worsen, even if most people agree that they are incredibly harmful. Another relevant feature of a coordination problem is that there's usually a strong disincentive for first movers. This can be applied to climate change, political revolutions, or even something like a great number of people secretly desiring to quit social media, but not wanting to lose connections or marketing opportunities. Laying the global coordination problem framework onto disarmament of nuclear weapons is an easy fit. The first mover who dismantles their bombs may be at a huge disadvantage even if everyone privately agrees that we all ought to disarm. In fact, as you also heard Bostrom point out, when thinking about nuclear war strategy, the first strike is often aimed at decapitating the opponent's ability to strike back. Of course, if your opponent has already willingly disarmed, say, in accordance with the mutual treaty, while you have retained your weapons and only pretended to disarm, the effect is just as devastating. So the coordination problem tends to persist. Now that we've laid some of the foundation to think about existential risk in general, let's move to a conversation Sam had with a guest who looks very closely at the prospect of nuclear war. The guest is Fred Kaplan, and when Sam spoke with him, Kaplan had just published a book called The Bomb. But before we get to Kaplan, let's first listen to some of Sam's introduction to the conversation and let him do the work of trying to drag our attention to the unnerving reality of this situation again. He's going to bring us back to 1983, 
at a moment when the only thing standing between us and nuclear Armageddon may have been a single person's intuition. The doomsday clock was just advanced closer to midnight than it has been at any point in the last 75 years. It now reads 100 seconds to midnight. Now, whether you put much significance in that warning, just take a moment to consider that the people who focus on this problem are as worried now as they've ever been. But do you think about this? If I were to ask how long it's been since you worried that you might have some serious illness, or that your kids might, or how long has it been since you've worried about being the victim of crime, or worried about dying in a plane crash, it probably hasn't been that long. It might have happened last week, even. But I would wager that very few people listening to this podcast have spent any significant time feeling the implications of what is manifestly true. All of us are living under a system of self-annihilation that is so diabolically unstable that we might stumble into a nuclear war based solely on false information. In fact, this has almost happened on more than one occasion. Do you know the name Stanislav Petrov? He should be one of the most famous people in human history, and yet he's basically unknown. He was a lieutenant colonel in the Soviet Air Defense Forces who is widely believed to be almost entirely responsible for the fact that we didn't have World War III in the year 1983. This was at the height of the Cold War, and the Soviet Union had just mistaken a Korean passenger jet, Flight 7, for a spy plane, and shot it down after it strayed into Siberian airspace. And the U.S., And our allies were outraged over this and on high alert. Both the U.S. and the Soviet Union had performed multiple nuclear tests that month. And so it was in this context in which Soviet radar reported that the U.S. had launched five ICBMs at targets within the Soviet Union. And the data were checked and rechecked, and there was apparently no sign that they were in error, and Stanislav Petrov stood at the helm. Now, he didn't have the authority to launch a retaliatory strike himself. His responsibility was to pass the information up the chain of command. But given the protocols in place, it's widely believed that had he passed that information along, a massive retaliatory strike against the United States would have been more or less guaranteed. And of course, upon seeing those incoming missiles, of which there would likely have been hundreds, if not thousands, we would have launched a retaliatory strike of our own. And that would have been game over. Hundreds of millions of people would have died more or less immediately. Now, happily, Petrov declined to pass the information along. And his decision boiled down to mere intuition, right? The protocol demanded that he passed the information along, because it showed every sign of being a real attack. But Petrov reasoned that if the United States were really going to launch a nuclear first strike, they would do it with more than five missiles. Five missiles doesn't make a lot of sense. 
but it's also believed that any of the other people who could have been on duty that night, instead of Petrov, would have surely passed this information up the chain of command. And killing a few hundred million people, and thereby wiping out the United States and Russia, as you'll soon hear, our retaliatory strike protocol entailed wiping out Eastern Europe and China for good measure. This could have well ended human civilization. So when you think about human fallibility and errors of judgment, and realize that this ability to destroy the species is at all times, every minute of the day, in the hands of utterly imperfect people, and in certain cases, abjectly imperfect people, it should make the hair stand up on the back of your neck. And the infrastructure that is maintaining all of these systems on hair trigger alert is aging, and in many cases run on computers so old that any self-respecting business would be embarrassed to own them. And yet for some reason, almost no one is thinking about this problem. At the end of this compilation, we'll offer some recommended reading and viewing, including a documentary which focuses on that perilous moment with Petrov. Sam goes on in that introduction to outline a few more absurd instances of close calls involving accidental war game codes being loaded into computers or misinterpreted radar signals which nearly sent the bombs flying. So now let's hear more from that episode. We're going to hear Kaplan and Sam discuss Kaplan's writing about the Cuban Missile Crisis of 1962, arguably the first whiff that humanity got of the genuine prospect of nuclear war. If you need a history refresher on the events of 1962, we'll recommend a documentary in the outro of this compilation, and, of course, Kaplan's book as well. For this clip, you'll just need to recall that at the tensest moment of the standoff, there were hundreds of Soviet nuclear warheads pointed at the U.S. on launch pads stationed in Fidel Castro's Cuba, just 90 miles off of the United States coast. And the United States had a far greater number of missiles fixed on Soviet targets. Secret negotiations were underway by the leaders of all three nations involved to try to avert World War III and save face in front of their own populations. So here is Sam with Fred Kaplan from episode 186, an episode simply titled The Bomb. In your book, you report facts about the Cuban Missile Crisis that were not widely known and and were actually systematically concealed to some effect. Perhaps go into that for a second, because it gave us a sense that bluffing on the brink of nuclear war was a successful strategy because people thought that that's what had happened, that he just basically stared Khrushchev down and, you know, Khrushchev blinked. But that's not quite what happened. That's not what happened. Most of us do know now because it was revealed 20 years after the fact that, in fact, on the final day of the crisis, Khrushchev proposed a deal, a secret deal. I will take out my missiles from Cuba if you, the United States, take out your very similar missiles from Turkey. And Kennedy took the deal. What isn't generally known, and I don't know why it isn't known, because you can listen to this whole exchange on tapes that were declassified 20 years ago, but that you will read about in maybe two or three other books, if that many. But Kennedy reads the the proposal, and he says, and, you know, this is he secretly tape-recorded all of this. He goes, well, this seems like a pretty fair deal. 
And everybody around the table, all of his advisors, not just the generals, but the civilians too, Bobby Kennedy, Robert McNamara, McGeorge Bundy, all these paragons of good sense and reason, feverishly opposed this deal. NATO will be destroyed. The Turks will be humiliated. Our credibility will be lost forever. And, uh, you know, Kennedy let them talk. And then, you know, he said, well, you know, this was on a Saturday. The following Monday, they were, the United States, the military was scheduled to start in the attack. There were going to be 500 air sorties a day against the missile silos, missile sites in, in Cuba, followed four days later by an invasion. And Kennedy took the secret deal. He only told six people about this, though. And in fact, he put out the myth that there was no deal because this was the height of the Cold War. It would look like appeasement. One of the six people that he did not tell was his vice president, Lyndon Johnson, mm. who therefore went into the Vietnam War convinced by the lesson of Cuba, the false lesson of Cuba, that you don't negotiate. You, you, you stare them down. But here's what's even scarier. We later learned, this was not known at the time, that some of those missiles already had nuclear warheads loaded on them. So, mm -hmm. you know, they could have been launched on warning. Another thing we didn't know until much later is that the Soviets had secretly deployed 40,000 troops on the island of Cuba, some of them armed with tactical nuclear weapons, to stave off an anticipated American invasion. Therefore, if anybody else around that table except John Kennedy had been president, or if he had said, yeah, you're right, this is a bad deal, let's proceed with the plan, then there would have been a war with the Soviet Union, without any mm -hmm. question. Yeah, it's amazing. And so in your book, you, you report on the, on the details of the, these encounters between each U.S. administration and the war planners, which are generally uh -huh. the, the Air Force and the Navy. And each incoming president, you know, whether we're talking about, you know, Kennedy and, you know, his team with McNamara or Nixon and Kissinger or Clinton and Obama and their teams, each president comes into these meetings and for the first time is told what our first strike and second strike policies are. And each one, it sounds like, comes away absolutely appalled by what the doctrine yeah. actually is and committed from that day to changing it. And yet each has found himself more or less unable to change it in, in ways that fundamentally alter the game theoretic logic here. I mean, and these discussions are like, really out of Dr. Strangelove. Mm -hmm. The most preposterous scenes in Dr. Strangelove are no more comedic than some of these exchanges because these are plans that call for the annihilation of hundreds of millions of people on both sides. I mean, ever since Kennedy, we've been past the point where a first strike prevented the possibility of a retaliatory strike from the Soviet Union. So we're talking about protocols that are synonymous with killing 150, 200 million people on their side and losing that many on our side. And for the longest time, the protocol was to annihilate China and Eastern Europe, mm -hmm. whether they were even part of the initial skirmish with the Soviet Union. Right. The U.S. policy throughout the 1950s and into some of the 60s, the policy, this wasn't just the Strategic Air Command, this was signed off on by President Eisenhower and the Joint Chiefs of Staff, it was that if the Soviet Union attacked West Germany or, or, or took over West Berlin, 
And, you know, this was at a time in the late 50s, early 60s, when we really didn't have any conventional armies in Europe. But the plan was that at the outset of the conflict, to unleash our entire nuclear arsenal at every target in the Soviet Union, the satellite nations of Eastern Europe, and, and as you point out, China, even if China wasn't involved in the war, and it was inquired, well, how many people is this going to kill? And the estimate was about 285 million, and that probably was an underestimate. Now, what happened in the early 60s was that the Soviets started to develop their own nuclear arsenal, the KDRS. And some people said, well, this policy is a little loony, you know, quite aside from any moral qualms that you might have about it. If they invade Western Europe and we respond by nuking them, they're going to nuke us. This is a policy of suicide. And so beginning with, with Kennedy and McNamara, they tried to, to devise some plans to make a, a, the initial use of nuclear weapons. And by the way, this was almost always our going first, more limited something that was maybe just aimed at their military forces. And maybe that would halt them from responding, or if, it, or if they did respond, maybe they would respond just by hitting our military forces, not killing zillions of people. Maybe we can bring this down. And uh, one thing that I learned from researching this book is that, you know, Kennedy would and, and McNamara would sign off on this new guidance, kind of setting new options, as they called them, limited nuclear options for the war plan. And basically, the commanders at Strategic Air Command in Omaha pretty much ignored it. They just, they just didn't do it. They, they always wrote into the directives something like, to the extent this is militarily feasible, or when appropriate, you know, we will limit. And, and of course, they could rule, well, no, it's not militarily feasible, and it's not appropriate. Not until really, and, and, and every president since tried to bring down the limited options. Really, not until practically the end of the war, the end of the Cold War, did, did the situation change. And then it changed through the most kind of bizarre and unlikely way, in, in, in a way that, that nobody else, as far as I know, has, has ever written about. So, yeah, perhaps give us that change now and, and tell us what yeah. you understand our policy is today. Right. So, so the, 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 the directed the, by the time... George H.W. Bush became president. And actually, this was even a little toward the end of Reagan's presidency. The, the policy from Washington emphasized a lot of limited nuclear options. You know, we're not going to throw, throw off everything right away. So there was a civilian who was working for, of all people, Secretary of Defense Dick Cheney, who had read all of these doctrinal things over the years about limited nuclear options. He goes to the latest SAC briefing about the nuclear war plan. He hears nothing about limited options. You know, what's going on here? So with the permission of Cheney, he and his team get very, very deep into the actual nuclear war plan, deeper than anybody, any, any civilian had ever done before. And they discovered some amazing things that there was an amount of overkill that, that nobody could have imagined. For example, and this was in the late 80s now, there were 700 nuclear weapons, most of them of a megaton in explosive power or more, that were aimed at Moscow. <laughs> there was an airbase, a Soviet airbase in the Arctic Circle that couldn't even be used for three quarters of the year. 
17 nuclear weapons were aimed at this base. There was an anti-ballistic missile site in Moscow that we learned after the Cold War couldn't have hit, couldn't have shot down anything. There were 69 nuclear warheads aimed at this site. And, and then the real insight came to this. The, George H.W. Bush was negotiating some nuclear arms reduction treaty. And the civilian, whose name was Frank Miller, asked one of his contacts at SAC, he goes, listen, if we brought down the, the arsenal to such and such number of, of weapons, could you still perform your mission? And the officer said, that's not the way we think about this. And he goes, well, what I mean, he goes, no, no, I understand what you mean, but we're not authorized to ask that question. What we do here is we take the weapons that we have and we allocate them to the targets that we've listed. In other words, in the actual war plan, as opposed to what people were saying in Washington, at no point did anyone say, okay, how many of these things do we really need to accomplish whatever the aim is, you know, nuclear deterrence, nuclear war fighting, limited strikes, whatever you want to do, how many do we need? Nobody had asked that question. At one point, that there was a, a SAC commander named G General Jack Chain who testified before Congress. He said, I need 10,000 weapons because I have 10,000 targets. And a lot of people thought that either he was kidding or he wasn't too bright, but no. That is how this was determined. It was a completely mechanical thing that utterly divorced from any sort of rational undertaking. I want to take sort of the highest level game theoretic problem here, which it seems to me, I mean, there are several aspects to this, but I mean, first of all, they're, they're not weapons of war. You can't really mm -hmm. use them, right? Because it's it certainly at every point past. Eisenhower, to use them is to assure your own destruction. I mean, as you say, these are weapons of suicide and annihilation. And, and, and nonetheless, they persist. But here's where we kind of stumble into the paradoxes. They persist because, one, the difference in our world politically between having them and not having them is substantial. When you have them, countries treat you differently than when you don't have mm -hmm. them, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, we, we invade countries that don't have them, and we don't invade countries that have them. And they only work as a deterrent for conventional or you know, nuclear aggression from outside on the assumption that you'd be willing to use them. And so they only deter, I mean, let's take the simplest and gravest case, you know, our relationship to Russia now. You know, our nuclear arsenal only deters a Russian first strike on the assumption that we would actually respond to a first strike with a retaliatory strike of our own. And yet when you look at the, the logic of this act, just imagine the psychology of a president upon hearing of an incoming first strike. I mean, first, we've already established that he has to worry about whether or not he might be getting false information, right? I mean, he could be the next Stanislav Petrov, who's just, there's a radar glitch or a computer virus, or, you know, the system's been hacked, or Something could be off, and there's not really enough time to fully vet all of that. How much time is there now? How many minutes does the president have to respond to a first strike from Russia now from, you know, from subs and, and missiles? Well, from subs, I don't, yeah. from, from, from Russian soil to our soil is about a half hour. But for submarines, it could be like, you know, eight oh, minutes or something. it could be right, right off the coast. Yeah, it right. could be. It could be. Yeah. Okay. At the outside, he's got a half hour. 
to decide whether before he witnesses the ruination of everything he cares about, I mean, that is if he's not immediately reduced to ash himself, you know, if he survives, he's going to witness the obliteration of society. The United States is about to become a toxic wasteland inhabited by people who have accidentally found themselves far enough on the periphery of a fireball and a blast wave such that now they get to nurse their burns and their shrapnel injuries and await radiation poisoning in something very much like hell, right? We're talking about every facet of civilization being suddenly destroyed, communications, food production, everything in an instant. And so now we have a president who, in contemplating this, which is going to happen in, you know, whether eight minutes, 15 minutes, a half hour at the outside, he has to decide, he or she has to decide whether in what is likely to be his last act of any significance on earth, he wants to be the greatest mass murderer in human history by ordering a counterstrike and killing hundreds of millions of people on the other side of the world in a way that will do absolutely no good to him or anyone else he will ever know. So it works as a deterrent only on the assumption that a president will do that, right? To what human purpose, what is the purpose of doing that in that scenario? And yet the assumption is not only that that will happen, I mean, that's the policy. We rely on that expectation. And without that, none of this makes any sense at all. It's just the game theory breaks down. If you're not going to retaliate to a first Mm -hmm. strike, you have no deterrence against a first strike. And then you may as well not have these arsenals in the first place. Here's where you're getting into the true dilemma. So if all you wanted to do is deter, yeah, you say, okay, you you hit us, we're gonna we're gonna devastate you, we're gonna destroy you. But then, yeah, so then they start getting nuclear weapons. So then it becomes, well, is that deterrent really credible? As you put it, if they attack us and just attack our military forces, say, will they really believe? that we would strike back against their cities. And so people with good intentions said, yeah, you're right. We need to create our own limited options and we need to be able to say, okay, no, we'll, we'll strike back in a limited way. That becomes more credible. But then to do that, you've got to believe it yourself. So you've got to develop some doctrine to do this, some certain kinds of weapons to do this, some plans to do this. And as this evolves over a period of a decade or so, the concepts of nuclear deterrence and nuclear war fighting converge in this fra- in, in this rabbit hole of logic there is no longer any distinction between the two to have a credible deterrent mm. requires a nuclear war fighting capability and mentality and you know it's interesting president kennedy was the first one to address this in, in a roundabout way kennedy believed that if there was a war with the Soviet Union, it would probably go nuclear. And if you started in using nuclear weapons, there would be little way to, to prevent it from going all the way. And so Kennedy decided, we need to get out of the Cold War. That's the problem here. And he gave a speech at American University in June of 63, where he basically pro- and proposed it into the Cold War. And Khrushchev The Soviet papers, Pravda and Izvestia, they reprinted this speech in its entirety. 
the Soviet government, they, they lowered the jamming. They turned off the jammers to let Voice of America and Radio Free Europe come in so that people could listen to this speech. And Khrushchev responded to it. You know, he told the U.S. ambassador, this is the greatest speech by an American president since, since Roosevelt. And they started doing things like a, a test ban treaty and a hotline, and they were going to do a lot more. And then Kennedy gets assassinated. A year later, Khrushchev is ousted. And really not until 1964 does the nuclear arms race, as we know it, really start to take off. So there was a potentially pivotal moment way back then. And, and we've been sort of, uh, we, we've been following the turn that, that the pivot actually ended up taking ever since. We'll pick up on Kaplan's somewhat disheartening tone at the end of that clip in a moment and follow that track to the political knots that we're trying to untie today. But before we go to a conversation about a particular nuclear threat in the year 2022, let's listen to something a bit more hopeful that Kaplan mentioned. The speech given by John F. Kennedy in 1963 that was shared with our nuclear nemesis in the USSR. Kennedy delivered the words at a commencement address for American University in Washington, D.C. The speech itself was titled, A Strategy for Peace. Here is a bit of its lofty and optimistic tone. Today, the expenditure of billions of dollars every year on weapons acquired for the purpose of making sure we never need them is essential to the keeping of peace. But surely the acquisition of such idle stockpiles, which can only destroy and never create, is not the only, much less the most efficient, means of assuring peace. I speak of peace, therefore, as the necessary rational end of rational men. Too many of us think it is impossible. Too many think it is unreal. But that is a dangerous, defeatist belief. It leads to the conclusion that war is inevitable, that mankind is doomed, that we are gripped by forces we cannot control. We need not accept that view. Our problems are man-made. Therefore, they can be solved by man. And man can be as big as he wants. No problem of human destiny is beyond human beings. Man's reason and spirit have often solved the seemingly unsolvable, and we believe they can do it again. John F. Kennedy was assassinated five months after uttering those words. We're now going to spend some time in the present day. It's difficult to make sense of nuclear weapons by looking at numbers, because it seems like such a game-changing weapon, and having just one of them immediately creates the kind of power imbalance that drastically warps the landscape of any kind of rational game theory. In our AI compilation in this series, Sam references a quote which has disputed origins. The quote is, Sometimes quantity has a quality all its own. It has been attributed to Stalin, but might actually originate in an Allied defense newsletter from 1980, which, fittingly, made an argument for increasing military presence in non-nuclear NATO operations. The logic of the quote points to a way to deter opponents with large numbers of small arms, like massive armaments of tanks and guns, rather than small numbers of large arms. 
You can flip the quote when thinking about nuclear weapons. Sometimes their quality has a quantity all its own. So here are some current numbers. There are about 13,000 nuclear weapons estimated to be on Earth right now. The U.S. and Russia have most of them, with 5,500 and 6,200, respectively. Those two countries having them should be no surprise, given their histories and rivalry. Here is the list of the other seven countries that are thought to have nuclear weapons, given here in descending order of how many they're estimated to have. China, France, the United Kingdom, Pakistan, India, Israel, and North Korea. That list has bitter rivals, allies, and tenuous relationships, which shouldn't make any of us very comfortable. But the final one on the list, North Korea, really brings home the quality-quantity quote. It's a strange state of affairs when a country as closed and economically inconsequential as North Korea is can garner so much international attention and so much concern from world powers like the U.S., especially with an unstable and otherwise weak leader. In fact, the unstable personality of any leader in possession of these weapons is actually incentivized by their nature. Think of a poker player who has an easy strategy to predict. Let's say he never bluffs. He only makes big bets when he has a great hand and folds when his hand is weak. This player is an easy opponent to defeat for obvious reasons. The player who always bluffs is also just as easy to defeat though perhaps a bit more frightening psychologically. And then there are the players at the table who you just can't figure out and predict, and those tend to be the most dangerous. But there's something about a nuclear weapon that almost nullifies this whole analogy. Having a nuclear weapon is like knowing that there are cards in the deck that blow up the table if they're played first. And when you know that several of those cards have been dealt and your opponent could play one at any time, calling someone's bluff is paralyzingly scary. If someone at the table has a card like that, it's very hard not to fold when he pushes his chips into the pot, even if you are quite sure that they are bluffing. This player can bully an entire table, even if he's playing with a weak hand. With that analogy in mind, we'll go to our next conversation which is with Mark Bowden, who had just published an article in The Atlantic called How to Deal with North Korea. The article got Sam's immediate attention, and their conversation involves non-nuclear traditional warfare threats from North Korea as well, but the nuclear variable plays an undeniable role in its engagement. And they hint at another state in pursuit of nuclear weapons for their same negotiating power. This is from episode 88, an episode titled must we accept a nuclear North Korea? How big a problem is North Korea at this point for the rest of the world? I and mean, how would you rank order it in terms of our concerns for our own well-being and the, and the well-being of all the other implicated societies? Well, I think that it's far and away the largest national security concern of the United States. Everybody, I think largely because of media, you know, has this outsized fear of terrorist attack by Islamist fundamentalists, which is sort of a hangover from 9-11, which was 16 years ago. Um, I think that, you know, the threat of terror attacks will be with us always. But North Korea poses a threat on a completely different scale. They have 
weapons that could kill millions of people. Right now, they're, you know, the primary threat they pose is to South Korea and to Japan. Uh, but as their reach extends with uh, ICBMs, they, the United States is also potentially a target. And while they don't have the kind of uh, arsenal to pose an existential threat to the United States, I do think that the prospect of a nuclear weapon being exploded over Los Angeles or any other American city is a pretty terrifying prospect. And one that, frankly, as this article goes on to explain, uh, there's very little we can do to uh, prevent short of deterrence. The implication of their recent missile test is that people agree that they can probably reach Alaska and Hawaii now, but not quite Los Angeles or the rest of the the United States. But that should be coming in pretty short order. And And then you are talking about, there really is no word to describe how crazy and irresponsible the statements are of the regime, whatever you think their actual motivations are and whatever you think their level of suicidality could be. But we have a completely maniacal regime, which in what's the outside estimate, a few years, five years, should be able to land a nuke on a city like Los Angeles or San Francisco? When I wrote the piece, which is just a few months ago, the estimate was three or four years. But this most recent ICBM launch, successful one, came much earlier than anticipated. So my guess is that we could probably even dial back the three and four years. It might be even closer than that. So in your article, you talk about four possible responses to the problem, and they all suck. (laughs) So let's, let's move through these. First, just tell me briefly, what are the four? Well, the first would be uh, an all-out attack, what I call prevention, which would essentially crush the uh, Kim regime, would destroy its military, wipe out its uh, arsenals, and essentially you know, reduce North Korea to a stateless um, uh, humanitarian zone. The second I call turning up the screws, and that would be Um, applying pressure through some form of military attack or embargo that would really hurt North Korea and would, but would be short of an all-out attack and that would seek to um, essentially prove to to Kim Jong-un that we mean business and, and hopefully get him to recalculate his plans and back away. Uh, The third option is decapitation. And that would involve targeting Kim himself, or maybe Kim and a few of the key people around him, probably to assassinate them, or possibly, I guess, even more less, even less likely to arrest them, and uh, and thereby um, sort of take off the head of that state and, and hope that something um, more reasonable would follow. And the last option, uh, which may be the hardest to swallow, but which I think is probably inevitable, is acceptance, which is recognizing that nuclear technology, missile technology is old stuff. It's been around for more than a half century. Uh, Lots of people know how to do it. And North Korea is eventually going to figure these things out and going to have these weapons. So now how do you view this conflict with Trump in the driver's seat? People imagine that his the breaking of the mold of the professional politician and the professional president 
is a real strength. You know, you you got this wrecking ball swinging all over the surface of the earth right now, and all of our enemies now need to take notice because there's, there's no telling what Trump will do, and that this is a a good thing across the board. We're we're shaking things up. I guess I could imagine a situation where it's a good thing or conceivably a good thing. What is the most charitable reconstruction of the pro-Trump line here that you can put forward? Is there any, I mean, is there any way you can see a silver lining to Trump vis-a-vis the North Korea situation? I just don't, I don't see the unpredictability of Donald Trump working to anyone's benefit here in that region. And, and when you're talking about nuclear weapons, uh, predictability is important. Uh, you know, it's, it's well and good in, in a world of conventional arms that your enemy is off balance and worried that you might attack them. But a miscalculation in a nuclear age, in the nuclear age, it's just, the consequences are just so unthinkably awful. And that's why for most of my lifetime, the major thrust of military policy worldwide has been to prevent the use of nuclear weapons and and also chemical and biological weapons. Uh, So any unpredictable actor who's dropped into that mix is really bad, not just for the United States and Korea, but for humanity. And so what is the the lesson here with respect to proliferation? I mean, is it that it really matters that you get nukes because once you do, the world really can't deal with you? No one can really successfully coerce you? And it's really both sides of it. It's like, uh, we can't really do anything with our nukes, so they're, they're kind of unusable. I guess there, there's a an argument for disarmament on that level or, or, or drawing down to the, the absolute minimum required to respond to um, a first strike. But nobody's contemplating the first use of nuclear weapons apart from the maniacs. And the maniacs have learned that if you have nukes, you have paralyzed the rational actors of the world. I think that's right. Uh, I think, however, um, and, and, and I think you might, Sam, be using the word maniac a little bit loosely. Uh, you know, it actually makes sense what you're saying. And, uh, you know, I can see someone like Kim Jong-un very rationally arriving at that conclusion. In this case, I'm, I'm talking about moral maniacs, the kind of people who would say, we're going to annihilate these innocent people over here without a qualm, unless you give us what we want. Yeah, well, that, that's fair. But I do think that in order to put yourself in that position, you have to be willing to completely isolate yourself. And while China and Russia have continued to trade somewhat with North Korea, uh, the reason that we can't bring sufficient pressure on them, or we haven't been able to, is that they don't have ties with the rest of the world. They've had to make themselves into an outlaw regime. And, you know, Iran is a good counterpoint. Iran is a country which also has pursued nuclear weapons and believes they need them to prevent, um, you know, being attacked. And, and it would help prevent them from being attacked. But they also have extensive trading ties and banking ties throughout the world. And so I, they made the calculation uh, during the Obama administration. And, you know, when Obama was able to get many countries around the world and the key trading partners with Iran to get on board with that 
with the uh, nuclear pact that we signed with them. And we pressured Iran into halting their nuclear program for at least 15 years. So they are, they're susceptible. So I just don't think there are many regimes that, uh, like the one that Kim Jong-un has, uh, that would find it um, acceptable to so completely isolate themselves for that one reason. And that would be to build a weapon that they couldn't use without being destroyed themselves. Okay, so we looked at two potentially worrisome nuclear-armed world powers. All of the countries on the list also pose their own threats, of course. Even the United States standing on shaky legs must make the world anxious given its massive nuclear arsenal. The prospects of major countries finally making good on the mutually assured destruction promise of nuclear war is a global fate worth trying to avoid. But, unfortunately, there are other dangers to focus on which don't involve codified state actors. The prospect of any kind of non-state terrorism infamously presents the challenge of having an unclear target to retaliate against. States have stumbled over this challenge forever, sometimes making monumentally misguided policy decisions in the aftermath of an attack. But the notion of nuclear terrorism is beyond frightening. A single weapon like this, ending up in the hands of the wrong person or people, is a crippling thought. Here is another troubling thought. By most reports, there have been six American nuclear weapons which have gone missing and are still, as of this reading, unaccounted for. These are referred to as broken arrows. Five of the six were plane crashes or other technical aviation problems, where either the crew was ordered to release the bomb over the sea or the plane went down over the water. The other incident was the sinking of a submarine with a nuclear weapon on board. All of those incidents were in the 1950s and 60s. Most of those bombs are likely corroded beyond any recoverability at the bottom of the ocean. Let's hope. But that is just the broken arrow story for the United States arsenal. The global estimate of broken arrows is unknown. These are the kinds of unnerving thoughts that our next guest deals with. The guest is William J. Perry, who served as the United States Secretary of Defense under Bill Clinton and served in high levels of the government since the late 1970s. He wrote a book called The Button, which looks at the power that the president has over the use of nuclear weapons. In 2016, he produced a short animation titled Bill Perry's Nuclear Nightmare. It will be recommended viewing at the end of this episode. In it, he imagines what a terrorist attack involving nuclear weapons might look like and how it might unfold if the bomb is detonated in Washington, D.C. It is not a pleasant picture. This animation prompted Sam to get Perry on Making Sense for a conversation about how likely this kind of scenario is and, of course, what we ought to be doing to ensure that it doesn't materialize. William had his granddaughter, Lisa, join the conversation as well. She is the communications director for the William J. Perry Project, which is dedicated to ending the nuclear threat. This is from episode 210, The Logic of Doomsday. Honestly, one of the most terrifying pieces of media I've seen over the years 
was an animation that you put out, Bill, now a few years ago on nuclear terrorism, which it doesn't really fit into this logic of proliferation and deterrence in quite the same way, because any group that would do this is not, these don't tend to fall into the rational actor category. And also, it wouldn't necessarily be a nation state against which we could retaliate in response to an act of nuclear terrorism. But Bill, describe the scenario you concoct for nuclear terrorists and just how destabilizing a very low-tech attack on us could be. The scenario we imagined was a rogue group within a small country's nuclear program. This is a, a rogue group that has access to the material but is not under full control of the government. And they build one nuclear bomb, ship it back to the United States, where their agent in the United States then detonated on Pennsylvania Avenue. The level of catastrophe of just one, let's say, Hiroshima-type bomb is more than most people would ever imagine. You know, besides 100,000 or so people casualties from this, there is the terror and the panic. There is the, in this case, it's, it's, it's in Washington. The government is, is decapitated. And the conclusion from it is a level of catastrophe that's really hard to imagine until you start going through the possibilities of a scenario like that. So we made that video to make, to dramatize the point of how catastrophic one small nuclear bomb could be and the danger of nuclear terrorism. The good news from all this is that the one danger that we actually made some headway on in the last number of years is the one of nuclear terrorism. President Obama instituted a, a program of getting all the nuclear powers together to take steps to improve the safeguards on their fissile material. And I would say that there is, whatever the probability of a terror group getting a nuclear bomb was 10 years ago, it's substantially reduced because of what he has done in that area. So there is one bit of good news in all this is that we have taken steps, taken actions to reduce the likelihood of nuclear terrorism. Uh, the, the only real likelihood of a nuclear terror group being able to get a bomb and make it go is if they could somehow get their hands on the fissile material. If they could do that, it's easier to imagine how they might be able to build a crude but effective nuclear bomb. Have you followed any progress or lack thereof in our ability to detect nuclear materials coming into ports in shipping containers? I don't believe we could count on being able to detect that. As I put it another way, if I were the terror group, I would be pretty confident I could find a way of getting the fissile material in. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think in that video you talk about the prospect of a group setting off one bomb and then saying, you know, we have 10 other bombs in 10 other cities, you know, meet our demands or those go off too. Yeah. In the video, we, they only had one bomb and they, they brag about, they, they threaten the use of other bombs. And the terror effect of that threat is as great as if they actually had them. So yeah. the panic, not just in Washington, but all across the country, is, is very great. And the and economic catastrophe that results from that is very great. And you can look at the, just the changes that happened in our country after 9-11, and you can just imagine and extrapolate how much greater that something like a nuclear terrorist attack could be. I mean, there have been some experts who say, you know, this could be the end of our constitution as we know it, that this would really challenge 
pretty much everything that we hold as a nation to approach something like this. There is an upside to this, though, which is that there are things that we can do. And and as my grandfather brought up, part of why we need to be having dialogues with countries like Russia, no matter what is happening in other realms in politics, we need to continue to have dialogues with all nuclear nations, Russia in particular, because of how much this is an issue and that we cannot address the threat of nuclear terrorism as a single country. This is a global issue, and particularly nuclear powers need to be the most adamant to work on this because they have the materials, they have access to the materials, they need to make sure that they are securing these materials because it is quite an intense endeavor to, to process these materials. It is not simple. It's not something that can be done casually. So generally, when you're talking about terrorists getting their hands on fissile material, it's going to be coming from somewhere else. They're not going to be generating it themselves. And if it's coming from somewhere, it's coming from, you know, a refinery that that is established. And there are ways to track that. And that is, you know, what came down to with the Iran deal is that despite all of whatever critics may say, there are ways to track these things. And then they're quite robust. But we need to have a global cooperation to make sure that everyone is doing their part to secure these materials and to make sure that they are staying out of the hands of bad actors. But that requires dialogue, which unfortunately in our current political environment has pretty much gone away, particularly between the U.S. and Russia. And that does leave us more open to this sort of situation. So yeah, actually you you brought me to let's just address for a second the claim that going to nuclear zero is a completely quixotic and impossible dream. What should seem impossible is the maintenance of the status quo. We, we should recognize that you know, the place where we started, where we acknowledged the perverse utility of Hiroshima, there are certain bounded circumstances in which you can make the case that having and using nuclear weapons actually works. We're not in that situation anymore. We're in a situation where the prospect of winning a nuclear war it no longer exists, right? You know, you can annihilate your enemy, but your, your enemy also gets to annihilate you. You've probably annihilated yourself anyway by ushering in a proper nuclear winter. And there may be some local cases where one nuclear power could destroy a non-nuclear power or even another, you know, more primitive nuclear power without suffering the, the logic of retaliation. Most of the world is not in that circumstance right now. And, and the circumstance we are in is of a, a really badly calibrated doomsday machine poised to detonate based on misinformation, right? So it's anyone who thinks it's impossible to walk back from the brink here is, isn't really thinking about how untenable it is to just maintain our perch right on the edge of it. Uh, my first comment would be that the total elimination of nuclear weapons is not going to happen soon, if ever. But the danger is so great, the danger to all of civilization is so great, this is a goal we should be working towards. Ideas matter. And the idea that nuclear weapons are a danger to all mankind is a fundamentally important idea. And we should continue to keep that idea in front of the world. But secondly, 
even before that happens, or if it never happens, there are many things we can do to reduce the danger of nuclear weapons. And that danger primarily resides in an accidental or a blundering use of nuclear weapons through a technical error or through a political miscalculation. And there are a dozen or so very important political steps which we could take this year, next year, which would greatly reduce those dangers. We should be focusing our attention on doing those. Some of those involve ending the political presidential sole authority, involve prohibiting launch on warning, prohibiting first use. These are dangers we face we don't have to face. We can simply get rid of them. We can retire all of our ICBMs and still maintain a strong, very strong deterrence. And that not only greatly reduces the danger, but saves us hundreds of billions of dollars. We can limit strategic missile defense for the same benefits. We don't have to wait for new treaties. We can take actions to reduce our nuclear forces without the benefit of treaties. And we can elect a president that understands these issues and is committed to trying to deal with them. Those are all things that can be done in the relatively near term that will greatly reduce our dangers while we, over the longer period of time, work towards the elimination of nuclear weapons. In the final two clips, we're going to zoom back out from the political entanglements and potential detailed stories that spark nuclear disaster and go back to the cosmic perspective we started with. We're going to hear first from Toby Ord, who is a philosopher who looks at existential risk, and then Yuval Noah Harari, a historian and author who thinks on massive timescales. Ord had just released a book called The Precipice, which looked at existential risk. He considers the moment we're living in now to be so full of risk that, if we survive it, it will be referred to by future historians as the precipice. In his conversation with Sam, he describes a kind of crescendo of civilization where we rapidly increase our power along with our risk, which hopefully does not end in silence. His approach and perspective will bring us right back to the notions of the Great Filter and Fermi's Paradox before Harari provides some outlines for survival. Let's listen in on a bit of his conversation with Sam. This is Toby Ord in episode 208, which was simply called Existential Risk. To give some perspective, let's talk about just how you think about the ways in which the natural world might destroy us, you know, all on its own, and the ways in which we might destroy ourselves, and how you estimate the probability of of one or the other sources of risk being decisive for us in the next century. Sure. I think often when we think about existential risks, we think about things like uh, asteroid impacts. I think this is the often the first thing that, that comes to mind because it's, it's what we think destroyed the dinosaurs 65 million years ago. But you know, note that that was 65 million years ago. Uh, hmm. So an event of that size seems to be something like a one in every 65 million years kind of event. It doesn't sound like a once a century event, or you'd have trouble explaining why it hasn't happened, you know, many, many more times. And I think people will be surprised to find out how, how recent it was that we really understood asteroids, especially people of my generation, that in 1960, that's when we conclusively discovered that meteor craters are caused by asteroids. People thought that maybe they were caused by some kind of geological phenomenon, you know, yeah. like, like volcanism. It's amazing. And it, 
And then it was uh, 20 years after that, uh, 1980, uh, where evidence was discovered that the dinosaurs had, had been destroyed in this KT extinction event by an asteroid uh, about 10 kilometers across. So that's you know, 1980, that's, uh, that's 40 years ago. Uh, and then action, you know, things, things moved very quickly from that. In particular, it was around about the same time as Carl Sagan and others were investigating models for nuclear winter. And they realized that asteroids could have a similar effect, uh, where dust from the asteroid collision would darken the sky and could, in that way, cause a mass extinction due to stopping the plants growing. So this is uh, it's very recent, and people really leapt into action, and astronomers started scanning the skies, and they've now tracked what they, they think is 95% of all asteroids one kilometer or more across. And a uh, one-kilometer asteroid is a tenth the size of the one that killed the, the dinosaurs, but it only has one-thousandth of the energy and a thousandth of the mass. Hmm. So we could very likely survive that. Um, and they've found 95% of those greater than one kilometer across, including almost all of the ones which are really quite big, such as you know, five kilometers across or 10 kilometers. And so now the chance of a one kilometer or more asteroid hitting us in the next century is about one in 120,000. That's a, a kind of scientific probability from the astronomers. But it also wouldn't necessarily wipe us out. Uh, even if it did hit us. And that's a probability that we really is very unknown. But overall, I, I would guess that it's about a one in a million chance that an asteroid destroys us in the next hundred years. And uh, other things that have been talked about as extinction possibilities, when you look at the probabilities, they're, they're extremely low. So an example is a supernova from a nearby star. Uh, it would have to be quite a close star within about 30 light years. And it's it's extremely unlikely. It's unlikely that that this will happen during the, the lifespan of the Earth. And it's exceptionally unlikely it would happen in the next 100 years. I, I put the chance of existential catastrophe due to that at about one in a billion over the next 100 years. And th these, are, these are quite rough numbers, but trying to give an order of magnitude idea to the reader. And ultimately, when it comes to, to all of these natural risks, you might be worried that supernovas and gamma ray bursts and supervolcanoes and asteroids and comets Actually, it's very recent that we've discovered how these things work and that we've really realized with proper scientific basis that they could be threats to us. So there's probably more natural risks that we don't even know about that you know, we're yet to discover. So how, you know, how would you think about that? But there's this very comforting argument from the fossil record when you reflect upon this fact that uh, Homo sapiens has been around for 200,000 years, which is 2,000 centuries. And so if the chance of us being destroyed by natural risks, in fact, all natural risks put together was as high as, say, one in a hundred, we almost certainly wouldn't have made it this far. So using that kind of idea, you can actually bound the risk and show very confidently that it's lower than about one in 200 per century, and most probably below about one in 2000 per century. So that's before you even get to the fact that we can use our intelligence to adapt to the threat and so forth, that it's it's very hard to see that the, uh, the chance of extinction from natural events could be you know, more than something like one in 10,000 per century is where I put it. But unfortunately, the same can't be said for the, the anthropogenic risks. Yeah, and so let's, let's jump to those. You put the likelihood that we might destroy ourselves in the next century by uh, making some colossal error or just being victim of our own 
malevolence at one in six rather than one in ten thousand, which is a which is a pretty big disparity. Yeah. Well, well, let's let's start with the uh, the one that that started it all off uh, with nuclear war, just briefly. Mm. Uh, that I think it was in 1945, the development of uh, the atomic bomb, that we humanity really entered this this new era, which I call the precipice. If we if we really zoom out and try to look at all of human history, and and to see that the biggest themes that that unfolded across this time, then I think that two of them. One is this theme of progress in in our well-being, and I think particularly in that case, over the last two hundred years since the industrial revolution, that it's some it's less clear over you know it was the second hundred thousand years of Homo sapiens better than the first hundred thousand or something. Right. I've I'm not sure, but in the last two hundred years, we've certainly seen very marked progress. But the other major theme I think is this theme of increasing power. And that one, I think, has has really gone through the the whole of human history. And this is something where there have been about ten thousand generations of Homo sapiens, and it's only through a kind of massive intergenerational cooperation that we've been able to build this world we see around us. So, from where I sit at the moment, I can see zero things. Well, actually, except my own body, which were in the ancestral environment. It's something where we tend to think of this as very recent, but we forget that things like clothing is a technology that was mm. massively useful technology that enabled us to inhabit, you know, huge regions of the world which would otherwise be uninhabitable by us. You know, you could think of it as almost like, you know, spacesuits or something like that for the Earth. You know, massive improvements like this. So many things that we developed before we developed writing, which was only about five thousand years ago. So. This this time, like ninety seven percent of human history, we don't have any record of it. And but that doesn't mean that there weren't kind of these great developments happening. That was just these and these sequence of innovations that have really built up everything. When I think about that and and these how we kind of stand on the shoulders of ten thousand generations of people before us, it really is humbling. And all the innovations that they passed on in this unbroken chain, and one of the The aspects of this is this increasing power over the world around us,、uh, which really accelerated with the scientific revolution, where we discovered these systematic ways to create knowledge and to use it to change the world around us, and the industrial revolution, where we worked out how to harness the、uh, huge energy reserves of fossil fuels and to automate a lot of labor using this. Particularly with those accelerations, there's been this massive increase in. The power of humanity to change the world, you know, often exponential on on many different measures, and that it was in the twentieth century, and I think particularly with the development of the atomic bomb, that we first entered this new era, where we have our power is so great that we have the potential to destroy ourselves. And in contrast, the wisdom of humanity has grown only falteringly, if at all. Over this time, I think it's been growing,、uh, and by wisdom I mean both wisdom in individuals, but also ways of governing societies, which, for all their problems, are better now than they were 500 years ago. So there has been improvement in that, and there has been improvement in international relations compared to where we were, say, in the 20th century. But it's a slow progress, and we're so it leaves us in the situation where we have. The power to destroy ourselves without the wisdom to ensure that we don't, and where the risks that we impose upon ourselves 
are many, many times higher than this background rate of natural risks. And in fact, if I'm, if I'm roughly right about the size of these risks, where I said one in six, a die roll, that we can't survive many more centuries with risk like that, especially as I think that you know, we should expect this power to continue to increase if we don't do anything about it, and, and the chances to continue to go up of failing irrevocably. And because our whole bankroll is at stake, you know, if we fail once on this level, then that's it. So that would mean that, that this time period where these risks are so elevated can't last all that long. Either we get our act together, which is what I hope will happen, and we acknowledge these risks and we, make, we, we bring them down, we fight the fires of today, and we put in place the systems to ensure that the risks never get so high again. Either we, we succeed like that or we fail forever. Uh, and either way, I think this is a, a, going to be a short period of something like a, a couple of centuries or maybe five centuries. You could think of it as analogous to a period like uh, the Renaissance or the Enlightenment or something like that. But a time where that's of really cosmic significance, ultimately, where if, if humanity does survive it and we, you know, we live for hundreds of thousands more years, that we'll look back and that this will be what this time is known for, this period of heightened risk, and it also will be one of the most famous times in the whole of human history. Uh, and that, you know, I say in the book that, that school children will study it and uh, it'll be given a name, and I, I think we need a name now, and that, that's why I have been calling it the precipice. And the analogy there is to think of humanity being on this really long journey over these 2,000 centuries, you know, kind of journey through the wilderness, occasional times of hardship and also times of sudden progress and, and heady views. And that at the, in the middle of the 20th century, we found ourselves coming through a, a high mountain pass and realizing that we'd got ourselves into this very dangerous predicament. And the, the only way onwards was this narrow ledge along the edge of a cliff with a, a steep precipice at the side. And we're kind of, you know, inching our way along and we've got to get through this time. And if we can, then maybe we can reach much safer and more prosperous times ahead. So that's how I see this. Now, we're going to listen in on one final clip to hopefully offer some motivation and direction for us as a species. We've been dealing with some dark political notions and precarious situations in the last few clips that seem to cry out for urgent solutions. Neither Sam nor this next guest approach this challenge from a place of politically ideological commitment, but almost from a conclusion of necessity, or at least from a failure to see how the only alternatives could be successful. The guest is Yuval Noah Harari, who is the historian and author of the smash hit books Sapiens, Homo Deus, and 21 Lessons for the 21st Century. In his appearance on Making Sense, he spoke with Sam on a wide range of demanding topics, which could all present great filter problems for humanity. Near the end of their conversation, Sam put a question to him to probe his thoughts on what kind of political philosophies might be mandatory to deal with these threats. To refer back to Nick Bostrom's mention of the global coordination problem, Harari fails to see an alternative other than a stronger form of global governance, not to be confused with global government as a way to address our existential dangers. Sam and Harari are both well aware of the recent negative bias, at least in the West, of this kind of talk, 
and the global political recoil we've seen. Importantly, Sam also emphasizes the need for a story to motivate those kinds of philosophies into action. If you're familiar with Harari's work, you'll know that his thesis in Sapiens largely rests upon a notion that humans can be bound together and orchestrated by what he calls myths. He counts things like nations, currencies, religions, moral codes, and etiquette habits to be defined as myths. This particular aspect and ability of our species to construct and be self-governed by myths is what distinguishes us from the rest of the animal kingdom and gives us our unique creative and destructive power. This entire conversation is worth listening to. Yuval Harari's work as a historian and theorist is wildly popular, and for good reason. Here is the end of his exchange with Sam, where he lists nuclear war alongside other potential existential threats, and displays his pessimism that an attitude of nationalism is likely to make any of them less dangerous. This is from episode 68, an episode entitled Reality and the Imagination. I just want to bring it back down to Earth with a final question of increasing political and social import. Mm-hmm. It comes back to the issue of globalism and that's really the, the political moment, the way we are beginning to see globalism become, at least in America, I guess America and in Western Europe now, it's, it's a derogatory term. And we're witnessing a kind of collapse into nationalism and a populist attitude that claims or pretends to want nothing to do with globalism. I know you're someone who thinks that the end game for civilization is to get towards something like a a world government. I'm wondering how you view the possibility of progress in that direction given recent events in the last 12 months or so and and how you view the most likely utopian or dystopian outcomes for us in the 21st century in light of all that. Well, there is first the question of need, and then there is the question of possibility of a global community or global identity. Um, In terms of need, I I think it's really essential because all the major problems humankind will face in the 21st century will be global problems that simply cannot be solved on a national basis. The traditional criticism of nationalism was that nationalism leads to conflict and war and so forth. And this is still true. But I think the real objection to nationalist worldview today is that nationalism prevents us from solving the major problems, which are climate change, uh, global inequality, the threat of nuclear war, and the threat of disruptive technologies like artificial intelligence and bioengineering. It's obvious that with climate change, no single nation can solve the problem by itself, which is why nationalists tend to just deny the problem. At first sight, it seems strange that almost all the people who deny climate change are also from the nationalist right. I mean, what's the connection? Why don't you have left-wing socialists denying climate change? But the, the answer, I think it's obvious that There is no nationalist answer to climate change. So as as an extreme nationalist, you just have to deny the problem. But the problem is real. And unless we have a global effort, then we will face a a real 
ecological catastrophe in, in the coming decades. Similarly, if you think about nuclear war, this is a, an old lesson that humans have learned in the last 50 or 60 years. The only way to prevent global, uh, nuclear war is through global cooperation. It's not something that a single country can do by itself. Mm. And this is also true of technological disruption. If you think about the dangerous potential of bioengineering and artificial intelligence, regulation on a national basis is not going to help us. If the United States, say, regulates uh, or decides to stop all genetic experiments on human beings or decides not to give artificial intelligence control of weapons or something like that, it's not going to help if China or North Korea continue to do it, especially because these are high-risk, high-gain technologies, and nobody would like to stay behind. If the Chinese are doing it, and they gain some crucial advantage because of that, then the U.S. will break its own ban because it wouldn't like to stay behind. The only serious way to prevent the worst outcomes is through global regulation. Um, so this is why I think we now need uh, maybe not a global government, but global governance, a global mm. cooperation. I just don't see what could be the nationalist answer to climate change or nuclear war or disruptive technology. Now, this is, this is about the need. About the possibility, it's a different question because humans don't always make the best decisions. Uh, human stupidity has been one of the most powerful forces in history. It's not the only force, there is also human wisdom. I mean, sometimes humans do the right thing. If you look at, again, at nuclear weapons, so in the 1950s, many people were convinced that sooner or later, the Cold War will, will end in a nuclear war, which will destroy human civilization. And it didn't happen because the Americans and Soviets and Chinese and Europeans, they managed to cooperate enough uh, to prevent uh, this cat catastrophe. So there is, there is hope. I'm not saying it's hopeless, but uh, as I said, you should never underestimate human stupidity. Um, at present, I think things are not so bad. I mean, they are going in a, in a negative direction, but we are still in a far better position than, let's say, a century ago. If you remember where humankind was in 1917, then we are still in a relatively good place mm -hmm. in terms of global cooperation. But um, we are on the edge of a very, very deep chasm. And the way down can be maybe very long, but you, we can, you can cover it very, very fast. So I hope that humans will uh, cooperate in their best interests. I mean, if it's every country to itself, I don't think we can, we can uh, uh, solve these existential problems. Do you think we need a story above and beyond the story you just told in your answer to this question about the necessity of global cooperation to facilitate that cooperation? Is it enough to articulate the global nature of all these problems and their imminence 
widely enough and credibly enough again and again, or do we need some other kind of story to motivate people to cooperate? Um, I would tend to say that we need also a good story, a better story. Part of the problem with this explanation, it's too abstract and um, it's very difficult to get people together unless you have an emotional enemy. Mm. Uh, you could say that climate change is an enemy and uh, disruptive technology is an enemy, but these are very abstract enemies. Most people, uh, you cannot motivate them. You cannot harness their emotions unless you have a more uh, human-like enemy. This is why, in, you know, in, in Hollywood movies, even if you make a movie about climate change, you have to have some evil person to serve as the bad guy without which there is no movie. And I don't have a story to offer, uh, but my guess is that uh, we will need a powerful story um, to get people together. Yes, we need those aliens from outer space to actually attack us. <laughs> Quickly solve that, all our problems. That could be a, a good story, yes. Throughout this compilation, we've taken a decidedly worried stance towards nuclear weapons in general. Perhaps the concern broadcast by Sam and others in these clips is too negative, though it would be hard to argue that we should not be taking a much more intelligent and considered approach to this technology. But if you listen to the entire conversations from which we pulled the clips used here, you'll hear more reference to the work of Steven Pinker. Steven Pinker is a psychologist and author who has written books like The Better Angels of Our Nature and Enlightenment Now. He makes a strong case that we may live in the most peaceful time in human history, or at least a time when your odds of dying a violent, unnatural death are the lowest they've ever been. Pinker points to data that shows things like life expectancy, infant mortality, and the ratio of humans living in extreme poverty are all going in the right directions. In fact, even with all of the troubling strife that reaches our news feeds, we are still in the midst of a long, winning streak of peace for the world. Historians sometimes call this period, which extends to the present day, the long peace. Are we on a lucky streak? Is our luck soon to run out? Are we still haunted enough by the nightmares of World War II, with its two extreme punctuation marks in the shapes of nuclear mushroom clouds in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, to avoid a repeat at any cost? A short time ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima. With this bomb, we have now added a new and revolutionary increase in destruction. These bombs are now in production, and even more powerful bombs are in development. It is an atomic bomb. It is a harnessing of the basic power of the universe. The force from which the sun draws its power has been loosed against those who brought war to the Far East. We have spent more than $2 billion on the greatest scientific gamble in history, and we have won. What has been done is the greatest achievement of organized science in history. Or is the presence of nuclear weapons actually the thing fueling this long peace, and we should be grateful for their existence, 
Is an off-maligned institution like the United Nations a crucial ingredient to the Balancing Act, and its disintegration would ensure our doom? Those are all important questions worth debating, studying, and understanding. The history of nuclear weapons and our coexistence with them is still being written. To recall Bostrom's marble analogy, we've pulled them out of the urn and into existence, and we can't put them back. Even if we dismantle every weapon, the knowledge of how to build them cannot be unlearned and forgotten forever. It is still not certain just how dark the marble is, but it is certainly not white. A lot of profound things have been said about nuclear weapons. But perhaps no other quote encompasses the predicament better than one that comes from Albert Einstein himself, whose theories about physics were instrumental in helping us pull this marble out of the urn. The quote has been disputed and warped a bit over time, but the sentiment remains. You've likely heard it before. He said, I do not know with what weapons World War III will be fought, but World War IV will be fought with sticks and stones. So, before we wrap this one up, let's remind ourselves that the point of this compilation and Sam's interest in the topic is not to frighten you into hopelessness or despair. It is simply a plea to bring ourselves to the table of a serious topic and focus on making it through this filter, no matter how great. So the next time you look up at the night sky and fail to see resounding proof that technological civilizations can persist and thrive while having access to immense power, remind yourself that we could be early, we could be rare, or maybe if we're smart, lucky, and engaged, just maybe we could get through this filter. After all, there may be someone else out there scanning their quiet skies and hoping to see another civilization making it through the filters. Here is suggested reading, listening, and watching on the subject of existential threat and nuclear war. The episodes of Making Sense featured in this compilation were episodes 151, 186, 88, 210, 208, and 68. The full conversations are wide-ranging and don't only focus on the nuclear threat. Each guest has important books and articles on this subject. Nick Bostrom's paper called The Vulnerable World Hypothesis is about existential risk and where his black ball analogy comes from. Fred Kaplan's book, simply called The Bomb, is the jaw-dropping history that goes through presidents, generals, and all the times that we've come close to catastrophe. Mark Bowden's article entitled How to Deal with North Korea is worth reading as that standoff has not changed much at all since his writing and perhaps has gotten worse. William J. Perry's book called The Button details his view of U.S. presidential power as it relates to the nuclear option. Toby Ord's book The Precipice is an inspiring and fascinating look at existential risk. And Yuval Harari's 21 Lessons for the 21st Century has a relevant chapter devoted to war. In our introduction, Sam read from Jonathan Schell's seminal book from 1982 called The Fate of the Earth, which describes the consequences of a nuclear war in poetic and eerie detail. 
Toby Ord mentioned Derek Parfit's Reasons and Persons, which was written in 1984 and considered an instant classic of modern philosophy full of powerful argumentation. William Perry's Nuclear Nightmare is a five-minute animation which you should find. They also produced a similar nightmare imagining a nuclear war unfolding in South Asia. John F. Kennedy's Peace Speech is also something worth watching in full. PBS produced a decent documentary called Three Men Go to War, which chronicles the Cuban Missile Crisis. The Man Who Saved the World is a docudrama which tells the story of Stanislav Petrov and just how close that moment was to putting Einstein's quote to the test. Hollywood loves films about nuclear war, and it would be a fool's errand to make a complete list here. But since Sam and his guests mentioned it a few times, we have to recommend Dr. Strangelove, which is an absolute masterpiece of parody by Stanley Kubrick from 1964. This episode was edited, compiled, and written by Jay Shapiro, and read by me, Megan Phelps Roper. <laughs>